Hey, good morning, church. Good morning. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. What a glorious truth. Yes? And that truth has changed our lives, has changed our eternities. And we say amen and praise the Lord and hallelujahs. Yeah, Sammy says hallelujah. Yes. Well, we have enjoyed the Lord uh, as we've, we've sung together. We've uh, given our gifts. We've gathered around the precious truths of the Lord's table. What do you say we worship the Lord through the study of his word? You ready to do that with me? Grad. Let's, let's, let's uh, grab our Bibles then. Let's head for the book of First Peter chapter 3 this morning. First Peter 3, and if you'll reach in and pull that note page from your bulletin as well, and maybe you uh, got away today without your Bible and you'd like a Bible, we can certainly supply that for you. If you want to raise your hand, we'll direct one to you. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 this morning, and I'm going to step right in and uh, read this passage for us. We'll put it up on the screen for you as well. And here's what Peter writes. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And we will stop there. Let me commit our time, church family, to the Lord before we step in. And what a joy to open your book this morning, Heavenly Father, together as, as church family, and to realize that this book we hold in our laps is your heart, really your heart on the printed page. It's a glorious truth for us that you would desire not only to make yourself known, but you would communicate to us in such powerful, clear, enduring ways as through your precious word. Thank you. Your word, though, Lord, is your word, and in order to understand it well, we need your spirit to bring it to life and to help us. And so we invite your spirit to have free reign and movement among us today. Lord, I would love to just be a mouthpiece through which your spirit would speak to us today. Anything that is not of you, may it be quickly forgotten, but whatever comes from you to us, may that endure as your word endures. May we be doers of this word and not hearers only for your glory, for our good. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, church family, perhaps you saw in the news this past week, it was actually on Tuesday, that one of the largest evangelical churches in China had their building demolished by the government. In fact, literally blown up by the government. Tuesday's destruction is really just the latest incident in a dramatic escalation of persecution of professing Christians in the nation of China. Persecution that, if you kind of track these things, has actually been ramping up over, uh, over for well over a year throughout the nation. Under the sitting president, the government has destroyed many churches, just like this one, 
closed many more, and arrested scores of church leaders and church members, stating that Christianity poses a threat to the authority, the ideology of the Communist Party. Paid informants are turning in the names of their friends, and even family members are turning in family members to the authorities. It's becoming increasingly dangerous not only to be a Christian in China, but to associate with those who call themselves Christians. In fact, it's becoming more of a threat just to name Jesus' name publicly. And this hits close to home for us as a church family because there's a family that we know and love and care for right now serving in China. And uh, all of these developments are necessitating uh, strategic changes for them, and you can read about those in your bulletin this morning uh, in the Enlarging God's Kingdom section. At various times and in various ways, being a Christian has been extremely dangerous, difficult, costing perhaps a devoted follower of Jesus everything from the loss of reputation to the loss of family, the loss of property and possessions, loss of job, loss of freedom, and yes, even sometimes loss of life. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Peter together, you know that this circular letter that he has written was written to Christians living in the first century, and their life was very much like what we're talking about, extremely difficult. If you're joining us for the very first time, you need to know this about the book of 1 Peter. How does a Christian, how does any Christian live really well for Jesus when the surrounding culture is anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? How do spiritual exiles in any culture, in any time, live for their Lord and their Savior really, really well? That's the story of the book of Peter. That's the focus of this amazing five-chapter letter. And this question of how do we live well in a, in a culture that is difficult is well-timed for us as a church family because our culture is slowly but surely becoming increasingly intolerant of the authority of the Bible and the claims of Jesus. And we all know this. We might think that's what's happening in China could never happen here in the United States. But you know, it really could. And it could happen much more quickly than we would ever imagine that it would. Peter, Holy Spirit directed, is determined to help equip Christians for this battle, this eventuality. And currently he has been challenging us, his readers, both first century and us, to think about how we can most effectively bear witness of Jesus and his eternity-changing power to others, not with our words so much, but rather with our lives, since the current situation may not allow you to talk much about Jesus or speak his name openly. That was certainly the case in first century uh, Asia Minor. It was, it's the case in China. Could be the case for us at one time. And so all of this, this, this direction that Peter's been going with us, really ever since the middle of chapter 2, comes under the heading, as you see there on your note page, evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. We normally think of evangelism as sharing our faith verbally, 
But that's not what Peter's thinking. Peter says, beginning in the middle of chapter 2, let the transforming power of Jesus' life in you be seen. Heard if possible, but for sure, definitely let it be seen by your gentle and your submissive spirit because that's going to build bridges over which the gospel may travel. It's not going to build walls. Be gentle and submissive. And then if you recall, Peter takes his readers into four arenas where this lifestyle form of evangelism might just show up in our personal life, in our civic life, in our vocational life, and in our marriages. Let a gentle and submissive, quiet, serving heart be seen in these places where you do life, Christian. And who knows, someone might just be one to Jesus without you ever saying a word, just by watching you live, by your conduct. Chapter 3, verse 1, that's exactly what Peter said to us. So this brings Peter then to the next section of his letter and what is new ground for us, verses 8 through 12, that we just read. And he begins by saying, Finally, all of you, finally, all of you, And then he proceeds to go on for two and a half more chapters. Someone might think that Peter suffers from a common preacher's problem where the preacher says, finally, and then goes on for 20 more minutes. (laughs) What? Peter is not saying finally as in conclusion, but rather finally to sum up. To sum up, he says, I'm going to wrap up now my thoughts on evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. All of you, finally, all of you. And then he puts forward several evidences, several proofs that he would like to see working out in the life of all of us. Not just those who might be in the civic arena or the vocational arena or in the marriage arena. But he says, all of you, proofs of a transformed life. Let these flow out of your life so that others might see and perhaps some would be one to faith in Jesus. He's been targeting Christians in these specific arenas. But now he says, finally, to sum up what I want to say to you here, in addition to that gentle and submissive spirit that is such a powerful witness to those who don't believe in Jesus yet, all of you also have or be. And then he puts in front of us six more proofs that Jesus rules our hearts. So are you following the flow of his thinking? Well, the first of these six proofs then Found in verse 8, the first one, as you see it there on your note page, he says, Finally, all of you, for the sake of your witness, your testimony to others, be united on what really matters. Be united on what really matters. Have unity of mind. Peter says, Decide that as a devoted follower of Jesus, you will be united in your spiritual thinking with other followers of Jesus. All of you be on the same page with regards to what really matters spiritually. 
Now, the phrase unity of mind, which is three words in, in English, is a single Greek word, homophrenes, and the, it comes from two words that are put together, homo meaning the same, phreneo, to think. So it means to think the same, to think the same, to think united, especially on the most important of life's issues. Sometimes I get the sense, and you probably do too, that there are some Christians who believe that to have unity of mind, when we see that word unity in Scripture, that means that we must be in agreement, all of us, on all the, of the things that are a part of life, all, of, all the subjects. But I don't think that's what Peter is saying at all. Christians may not be on the same page politically. I'm guessing in this room there are different political perspectives economic perspectives, how to raise your kids. Not all of us agree on the same strategy for how that should be done. We're all Christians. We all go to IBC, but we don't all agree on all of those points. But when it comes to the most fundamental and foundational matters of biblical Christian faith, there needs to be oneness of mind and heart. We need to all be on the same page, united in mind. One day in Matthew chapter 16, our man Peter thought that he needed to correct Jesus. Does that sound like Peter? Yeah, that's the Peter we know. Now, Jesus had just said that it's going to be necessary for him. He was telling his disciples, his closest followers, it's necessary for me to go up to Jerusalem and suffer terrible things there at the hands of the religious and political leaders. I will be killed and I will rise on the third day. Jesus puts that right out in front of the guys in chapter 16. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, I don't think so, Lord. Uh, There's no way that that is going to happen. And really what he was saying was, I am not going to let that happen to you. And do you remember what happens next? The text tells us that Jesus turns on Peter And in what is perhaps the most powerful expression of emotion that we have from Jesus anywhere in Scripture, he says, get behind me, what? Satan. Satan. Oh, man. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Matthew 16, 23. The word mind, interesting. The word mind that Jesus uses here in this verse is the exact same word that Peter uses in verse 8 of chapter 3. Exact same word. And I wonder if he wasn't going back mentally and thinking about that day in Matthew 16 when he said that to Jesus. His thinking was way off track from what Jesus was thinking. Jesus is thinking redemption of sinners and Peter is thinking about his little world being rocked and upset by by such things. Jesus so values unity on matters of spiritual priority. In fact, he values this so much, church family, that of all the things Jesus could have prayed about on the night before he goes to the cross, guess what he prays about? Unity. Unity of mind amongst those who love him. John chapter 17, you know this place. Verses 20 to 23, check this out. Jesus, he's got his little band of of 11 disciples there with him. But then he says this, 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for you and me that they may all be what? One, united, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. May they be one so that others will believe. May they be united in mind so that others will believe. Jesus is thinking redemptively. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Unity of mind on the truths that really matter, Jesus says here by his prayer, will be an incredibly powerful witness to an unbelieving world that I'm real. That's what Jesus says. Of all the things he could have prayed for, he prays for unity of mind for you and me. Which is why, church family, we're not at all surprised when this thought of unity amongst us who love Jesus would pop up as a truth over and over in other places in the scriptures. We find it in Romans chapter 12, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. And then check this out. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the what, church? The unity of the Spirit. It's another way to say unity of mind, but unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over all and through all and in all. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, a call to be united spiritually on what really, really matters. We need to be on the same page. And that's why, church family, in our own doctrinal statement here at IBC, we We have a section that lays out what we refer to as the primary or the non-negotiable doctrines around which everything that IBC believes and does is centered. And there are six of these that we highlight in in our church documents. The inerrancy of the scriptures, the trinity, the deity of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith alone, And the resurrection of Jesus. These six. These six. Now there are many other important Christian doctrines. We all agree with that. But but none of those others are going to define your eternity. These six define your eternity. We unite around these so that the world will know that the Father sent his Son to save. These things matter. They matter most. So finally. All of you, for the sake of your witness, be united. And then secondly, Peter says, and also be sympathetic. Now this word, sympathos, means to suffer with someone. And isn't that interesting as we think about sharing Jesus? It's important, Peter says, that you suffer with others. To put it simply, we are to be ready to share 
in the suffering that others are experiencing. Now, this would have been especially poignant for these Christians that Peter's writing to since they are, in fact, suffering. I mean, they're suffering at the hands of their culture, and they're suffering in in very difficult ways. For the unbelieving around them to watch these Christians come alongside of another who is also suffering and to care for them in their hurting. They've been deprived. They're, They're jobless. They're disinherited. They might be in prison, whatever it is. For the unbelieving to watch the Christian minister to those who are suffering, well, that's going to proclaim Jesus in a powerful way. That's what Peter says. Let that be a witness. The writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to Christians who were in a similar difficult context of persecution. And at one point, the writer commends those he's writing to with these words. 1034 of Hebrews. You, what's the next word? You sympathized. You sympathized with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your own property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You're suffering with each other. You sympathize. Sympathos. It makes a difference. It's always a great thing to see or hear the church responding in times of crisis or disaster or unexpected hardship in a community. Sometimes the actions of the church will actually make the national news when some big disaster has happened and the church responds. In fact, often the first place that the unbelieving community, this is very interesting, the first place the unbelieving community looks in times of crisis is to the what? To the church. Why? Because historically the church has responded in times of suffering, has been sympathetic. IBC, if you've been with us for very long, IBC has numerous times over the years suffered with others who suffer, even in other states, and responded generously. Certainly we've responded locally to the recent crises that we have felt. When Hurricane Harvey, I'll take you back in time, When Hurricane Harvey devastated Houston, we rallied around that tremendous need. And this church family raised $16,000, got in touch with a pastor in Houston, and then directed all of that to a family that had been flooded. You remember this? You were here a part of that? Were a part of that? As that church and that pastor ministered with funds that we had supplied Members of that family came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a very practical expression of what Peter is saying. You suffer alongside of with the potential possibility that they might know Jesus. But our sympathy goes beyond that because we want to reflect Jesus' heart. You remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15? It says that we have a sympathetic high priest. Aren't you glad that Jesus is soon pathos, sympathetic, able to come alongside of us, step into our hurts and our sorrows and our suffering and bear those with us. And we want to look like Jesus, don't we, church? Having that sympathy, that sympathetic heart to the end that some might come to know Jesus. So here it is again, evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. We might not think of sympathy as being evangelistic, 
but Peter does. The Holy Spirit does. And then finally, all of you, for the sake of your testimony to others, be loving toward one another. That's the third thing that he says. Jesus said again on the eve of his death before the cross, John chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give you that you what, church? You love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people are going to know. You're going to be witnessing. They're going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter was there that night. He heard these words. They apparently never stopped ringing in his ears because he writes in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we've already been over this ground, he says, remember this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Where did Peter get that? Well, he got that from Jesus. And in chapter 4, we haven't gotten this far yet, but in chapter 4, verse 8, Peter's going to say, above all, Keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, when Jesus said a new commandment I give you, he didn't mean new in time like it was something that had never been known before, but rather new in kind. He would demonstrate the ultimate in unconditional sacrificial love. And Jesus says, I want you to love like that. Love like I love unconditionally and sacrificially in first john chapter 4 verse 11 we read beloved if god so loved us like that we also ought to love one another yeah how did jesus love he gave himself how are we to love we give ourselves we give our very selves unselfish service for the good of another Now, while brotherly love starts in the church, we love each other sacrificially, unconditionally. Peter's thoughts would certainly step outside the walls of the church. It goes beyond the church walls. We're reminded again and again that that God's love was for the spiritually lost world. Not just for those who are saved, but for all people. How do we show love for a world that is short on its understanding of real love? How do we show that? Well... We give and we give and we give unconditionally, sacrificially in 10,000 different ways. And then Peter's thought is the world is going to see this. They'll see this in you and it just might be the difference maker. Someone might want Jesus because they watched love working out of your life. You following his thoughts? Yeah. You flip your note page over. Finally, Peter says, all of you, for the sake of your witness to others, be what? What's the next? Tender-hearted. Maybe your version uses the word compassion. In Peter's day, this was a word that has, and this is very interesting, the root word for this word compassion or tender-hearted is the Greek word for intestines, your guts. (laughs) Really, I'm, I'm, I'm serious The Greeks would speak of their most powerful emotions being felt, guess where? Right here in their, in their stomach, what we call the guts. 
And so the first part of this word, this Greek word for compassion, is the word good. And so the word literally means have good guts. (laughs) Now, that sounds kind of crude, but that, that this word then morphed. It morphed because the feelings were in the guts. The word morphed to mean have compassion, feel, feel empathy for someone who is hurting. I, I, I really feel her hurt. I, I feel his pain deep down in my guts. Compassion. Tenderhearted. Would it surprise you if I told you that God feels this? Now, God is not, doesn't have physical guts, but this word is said of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is looking out over a large crowd who've come to hear him speak. And, he, and it says, when he saw the crowd, he had what? He had compassion for them. He felt it in his gut because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Wasn't this heart of tender compassion precisely what Jesus was calling for in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the good Samaritan? You remember this, remember this story? As a spiritual lesson, Jesus tells about a man who was robbed and beaten. He was near death, left on the side of the road. Two religious officials walk on the road and they see the guy laying there and they cross the other side of the road and go completely around him and leave him alone. Stone cold hearts. No compassion. And then a third guy, a foreigner, passes by. He sees the dying man. He comes to his aid, puts himself at risk by helping him, and then actually pays for his recovery. And it says, Peter, or Jesus uses this word. He says, he felt compassion for the man on the side of the road and responded in real difference-making ways. And then Jesus makes the application, do the same because in so doing, you demonstrate the compassionate heart of God. And such compassion perhaps might just win somebody to Jesus. At least that's Peter's thinking in this moment. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a what? A humble mind. For the sake of your witness to others, be humble. Very happy to be second. How do you land on that point? How do I land? Church family, what was the very first sin? recorded in scripture very first sin pride absolutely not a hard question pride satan tempted adam and eve in the garden of eden genesis chapter 3 and here's what satan says in effect god is trying to keep you from being all that you can be he knows that if you eat of the tree that he's forbidden you're going to become like him you will become gods yourselves and of course that That temptation led to the sin of pride-motivated disobedience and plunged the human race into all of the devastation and, and suffering and separation and death that we're all so well aware of. And every sin 
church family, every sin, if you peel back the layers far enough and deep enough, you're going to find ultimately at the heart of every sin, one sin. And it'll be the sin of pride, won't it? I will have it my way. I will do it my way. I will be first. I will be great. I will be the best. I deserve the recognition. I, 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 I. All of those reflecting one sin, pride. Humility is the very opposite of that. To have a humble mind means to have a right appraisal of ourselves before God, doesn't it? To really see who we really are before God. I'm a sinner. I've been saved by grace alone through Jesus' death and resurrection for me. That's it. Nothing else added. Nothing that I bring to the table. Nothing that I contribute. There is nothing I did to make my salvation happen. I deserve hell. I get heaven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it all. Pure grace. No room for pride. No room for boasting. All glory to God alone. Amen. And amen. Needless to say, humility was not a popular virtue in Peter's day. To be humble-minded or lowly-minded, maybe your version says, was seen to be a sign of weakness. You were not a strong person. You were, you were powerless and you were vulnerable. You were of servant status in Peter's day if you, if you expressed humility. And that was Peter's thought, really. He would have remembered Jesus saying, I didn't come to be served, but to what? To serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Peter's saying, let this virtue of your Lord be replicated in your life. In fact, he'll write over in chapter 5, when we get there, verse 5, clothe yourselves, put on, wear all of you, humility towards one another. Wear it like a garment, this thing called humility. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you. The time for honor is coming, Jesus, or Peter says, but, but for now, Christian, be small so that God, is seen as great. You be small. Very happy to be second. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme when he writes these words, Philippians 2, 3, 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Be very happy to be second is another way to say that. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, be very happy with, with not being at the front of the line. That was Jesus. Be that. Who knows how that might draw someone to faith. Peter's thinking about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. And then one more, a sixth proof of a life transformed. Peter says, all of you... For the sake of your witness to others, be forgiving and be blessing others. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, remember again, church family, Peter is, 
is writing to Christians who are being hammered hard by their culture, their neighbors, even by their family members because they've determined to follow Jesus and live for him. And some of the persecution came in the form of of evil intended actions. Maybe it was a beating, uh, being fired from a job, refusing to do business with you anymore because you're a, a Christian now, written out of the family inheritance. That happened all the time. Sometimes the persecution came in the form of, of false rumors, public verbal put-downs, character assassination, lies about you, words designed to cut very deeply. Peter's exhortation, don't retaliate. Don't fight back. Don't don't return in kind. Don't scheme to get even with those who are doing these things to you. A small child's first impulse when they have been hit is to do what? Hit back, right? Hit back. Any parent knows this, especially if it's your brother or your sister who hits you. What are you going to do? You're going to hit them back. That's a child's impulse when they've been hit. Adults. What is an adult's impulse? Well, they want to hit back, but they've learned that that's not really appropriate, and so they become very skilled at how they hit, right? How we hit. And, and, and we'll, we'll hit back by, by avoiding that person. They did that to me. I'm never talking to them again, ever. We hit back. Uh, we gossip about them. We'll talk. We'll tell stories. We, we'll slander sometimes. Even backroom scheming that, that will bring that offender down in some way. It happens. Not you, follower of Jesus, Peter says. Not you. You don't go that way. Recall the words from chapter 2 where Peter turns to the example of Jesus. Verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's our example, church? It's Jesus. And Jesus didn't, Return evil for evil or insult for insult or slander for slander. He's our first and best example. In Luke chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus says this, Love your enemies. Oh, man, what a command. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Is there anything unclear about that? Peter repackages those words because he heard them. He just repackages them in verse 9. And the Apostle Paul, spirit-led, puts the same call this way, Romans chapter 12. You know these words. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Will you be able to do that with every single person in your life? No, but you're going to try. You're going to try. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. What's the main word in that phrase? Never. (laughs) Never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, 
says the Lord. So have you been hurt by someone? Have you, have you been taken advantage of? Have you been slandered by someone seeking to smear your good name in our community? Has someone stolen what belongs to you and you know they've stolen it? They know they've stolen it? Is there a part of you that wants to get even? Peter and the whole and the whole of Scripture and the example of Jesus says this. Christian, there's more at stake here than you having the satisfaction of revenge. There's something way bigger going on here than that. Respond to such wounding and verbal assault with kindness. Give that opponent the benefit of the doubt. Press for peace. It may not be granted, but you, you press for it. You attempt to reconcile. You forgive and think about what will boost that antagonist stock and you do that thing. Why? Why? Why do I do that? Well, in Peter's thinking, it is such a radically unexpected way of responding that not only will your opponent, but everybody else is going to assume you've got an ulterior motive going on here for why you're responding like that. And in fact, you do have an ulterior motive. What is your motive? That they might see Jesus. That they might see Jesus in your response. They would see that Jesus rocked your world and you don't respond like everybody else around them responds when they've been hurt or wounded or taken advantage of or slandered. And you receive a double blessing because you know you're right in the center of God's will. Someone might know Jesus. That would be awesome. But you're honoring God. A double blessing. And then as we wrap all this up, you can see there on your Bible page, Peter wraps up this whole section that began back in chapter 2, verse 12. He wraps the whole thing up, evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism, by quoting an Old Testament passage out of the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. Reads like this one time. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, church family, why does Peter quote this psalm here? Why does he do that? Well, He's simply backing up his words with the word, right? That's all he's doing. And is that not a great practice for you and me? Back up our words with with God's word. Scripture is the final authority for all of life and faith and practice for you and me. And Peter's just backing up what he has said in verses 8 and 9 with Scripture kind of gives that kick of authority maybe to his readers as if to say, look, Christians, you're, you're living in a hostile culture that has dug its heels in to your Savior, to the thought of, of a Redeemer. You're living in hard circumstances. It's very difficult. You're wondering how life could be much worse than it is for you. In spite of that, I call you to stand united with your brothers and sisters 
guarding against any division. And I call you to be sympathetic to those who are suffering around you. And I call you to love unconditionally and sacrificially. And I call you to show compassion for the hurting, not only in the believing community that you're a part of, but with those who are outside, the unsaved neighbors around you. And I call you to reflect humility that moves uh, you to the back of the line, even though everybody else is running for the front of the line. And I call you to refuse to strike back, to retaliate, to return in kind when you are wrong. And I call you to all of these things, Peter says, because this is what God has called you to. You can love life and see good, many good days, even when it's really, really hard If you will live like this, live out these proofs that your life is different because of Jesus. Some are going to want what you have. It's great advice for Christians in the first century. It's great advice for Christians in the 21st century, is it not? Evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. May it be so, church family, for all of us. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, as we come to you again, we've just taken in so much more than we can can really absorb well in the moment, but you have been so kind. Once again, you've challenged the way that we look at our world, how we think about our world, and how we are to live well in it. It's really not about us. It's about you. It's all about you. And thank you for challenging us to think about these proofs in our life that would reflect well a Savior who came, died, rose again, and redeemed us to yourself. Thank you for these these six challenges to us today. We so want to be doers of these things, not merely hearers of them. But for that to happen, you're going to have to do the work and continue to transform our hearts little by little so that we look more like Jesus. For your glory, we ask it. May we be the proof that you're real to those who are looking for something real. We'll say thanks in Jesus' strong name. Amen and amen.